Ms. D. Jensen. We have a quorum. Um, okay, um, but we need to ask for me and Michelle as well. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I did say Trustee Lawrence. Did you? Okay, yeah, and Trustee Zorthian. Okay, Trustee I'm here. Thank you. Sorry. Um, all right. So now I. So let me. Um, we'll start with the consent agenda. That there. Uh, um, it, as approval of minutes on the yes, agenda, and those, but I they're, they're, those minutes aren't ready yet, so we'll have to bring those back. All right, so we'll postpone the approval of minutes and the approval of policies and procedures. Anyone want the, to make a motion to approve them? Second. Uh, any questions? Any concerns? Those in favor? Aye. 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 As well. No one opposed. The policies and procedures are approved. And, and now to the medical staff reports, chief of staff reports. Um, already, we have Dr. Hearn first in, on the list. Excellent. Um, so my staff report, we just had our, our MEC yesterday. My, uh, my report focuses on a, a few things, really. The first is that we, um, you know, our, our staff has been participating in the beta heart process. Um, so we uh, had representatives, I believe three physician representatives uh, participate in days number three and four of the five-day training for beta heart, talking about RCAs, talking about um, care of the caregivers, um, and creating um, systems uh, that are sort of peer supporting of caregivers and how to disclose errors um, to patients uh, to help not only sort of foster their own resolution um, and um, and also sort of from a risk perspective. So is it, so they gave a, a, a report about that. What's interesting is that um, you know we've been talking about well-being and burnout for a number of months now. Um, and what's great about the Beta Heart program is that it seems to be aligning that process and thought process uh, with sort of what we've been talking about uh, from the physician side uh, for the last few months in that Beta Heart is all about uh, peer support networks and, 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 and creating resiliency in your institution, not only at the physician level, but at other levels, nursing, RT, techs, EBS. Everyone's affected when there's a bad outcome. Um, and so the Beta Heart program is really sort of designed to help sort of foster resiliency and foster sort of wellness uh, from that perspective, and um, from the physician side, you know, we've identified in the last year that sort of wellness and burnout is probably the number one priority that the medical staff would like to see addressed, and we're starting to address it a little bit uh, from our side. We're creating a, a, a wellness committee and that sort of thing, and I've been in, in, uh, in contact with uh, Mr. Moy and, and uh, Mr. Finley um, and others about sort of creating um, wellness centers and that sort of thing, and while there are some hurdles from a legal perspective, um, it's great to see Beta Heart sort of agreeing with us about the creation of like wellness and resiliency and all these sort of things to, to sort of focus on on um, on taking care of our of our staff members in difficult times, but also of ongoing ongoing times. So that was uh, that was uh, was nice to see that sort of a lot of people are aligning in terms of focusing on resiliency um, and burnout. I thought that was that was really quite nice. Um, my other. Um, 
points um, for our discussion. Or that um, those are the main ones um, that uh, we've had ongoing um, chair searches uh, for a number of our different departments, and uh, those have been going well. We've named and uh, accepted a new uh, anesthesia chair. We're in our final stages for a, for a psychiatry chair. We have two finalists. The OBGYN search uh, just got kickstarted today. Um, and the general surgery chair uh, search is ongoing at UCSF. So all of those sort of ongoing processes are in place and we're, we're very excited about that. Um, in addition, we're trying to work out um, sort of new and, and more robust structures for quality and IPPC uh, so that uh, we get excellent sort of data and also we get uh, sort of robust processes to, 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 um, to help when we sort of find providers that need extra additional help. So a lot of those processes are sort of in the process of Redundant, sorry. A lot of uh, those committees and that and those directions are in the process of being revamped and sort of fine-tuned. Um, but I feel like we're doing a good job sort of going forward with, with that. We also have our bylaws revisions that are um, from the medical staff that are at the uh, at our attorney right now, um, just going through their final revisions, um, and we should be uh, voting on those in the next couple months. Those are my main points. I may have some, we'll have some other points in the uh, in the um, session at five o'clock too, probably. Do you, are you allocating resources in the budget for, you know, the quadruple in the physician wellness and some of that? Like, does that come with, besides, you know, the talking about it and in, in the implementation and the planning, how are you advocating for that? Well, that's actually a, an interesting question. Um, technically, uh, so we are, as a medical staff, we are committing resources to conduct the, what's called the MBI, or it's called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. It's a standardized burnout survey for, uh, for medical providers. It's been well categorized and studied sort of nationwide. So the medical staff has committed uh, to funding that amongst the medical staff um, to, to do that. The challenge that, uh, that we as a system face is that um, where wellness centers have been created at other institutions like Stanford, Davis, Kaiser, et cetera, there are um, other funding sources that that fund that the Stark laws have some restrictions in terms of funding sources for physicians who are not employees. The thought is that you don't want to generate kickbacks uh, for physicians to ref self-refer patients to the facility. So there are very strict federal laws called the Stark laws uh, that prevent funding like that. That being said, there are exemptions for Stark laws. For instance, hospitals can pay to recruit physicians from other parts of the country. And so there are clearly exemptions for that um, and ways to sort of create funding for those models. And we've been discussing maybe one option is to maybe have the foundation fund uh, a uh, part of that wellness uh, criteria so that keeps it away from the AHS mm -hmm. uh, structure that would, that would prevent the sort of legal crossover barriers. But that those are sort of you know that's a multi-year process, but at least this year we have committed as a medical staff to, to to assessing our own sort of levels of burnout. We feel like it's very high, but we don't have any documentation for that, um, and so we feel like we're gonna you know put your money where your mouth is, and so we're gonna we're gonna pay to actually assess our own staff. Um, but my hope is in the long term that we create 
a wellness center, a wellness program that's very robust that applies to all members of the medical staff and all of the, the, the staff members here, nursing, other providers who can benefit from that um, and uh, and not have it be very restrictive. I've you know, been told like in, there are certain sessions where these people can't attend, these people can't because they're contracted providers and that seems overly restrictive and not in the spirit of wellness, but I understand the motivation. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's challenging to hear those sorts of words when we're all trying to sort of fight the same sort of burnout and wellness issues. So if we can figure out a way to get, the, get it funded that would apply to everybody, I think that would be the ideal. Keep, keep that on our radar. Um, I, I had a conversation with some doctor friends this past week, and they were talking about burnout and, and some of these various things. And one of the conversations that they raised and I guess we got into the conversation about Prescani and the, the measurements and those kinds of things. But the, they, were, they were talking about the push-pull they had between quality and patient satisfaction and how those two things created a great deal of stress. And I, the more they talked about it, I, I began to recognize that that push-pull because the doctor wants to do what is important but the patient may say uh, you know I like ice in my juice or but I want antibiotics know. for this cold that's right you know and you know it's not supposed Sorry. to be yeah, exactly. exactly so are, do you guys experience that every day absolutely and so that's the challenge is that we're we're scored um, and our departments are scored and our hospitals are scored on Prescani and yet when interacting with a patient, there's always that tension where the patient's like, I need antibiotics. And you say, well, let's talk about what antibiotics might do to your system, and you'll be exposed to other bacteria, et cetera. And so that's, that's a constant tension that we're facing in medicine. There are, number, there, there are many, many aspects that contribute to burnout. That's one of them, a challenging EHR system, access to primary care, access to throughput, challenge, you know, overcrowding issues. There are lots of issues that contribute to burnout in, in, in all of our institutions, but that's clearly part of it. Absolutely. So it's not, it's, is it the measurements and the rankings that create more of that? Yeah. I don't know that the measurements, uh, <coughs> I think that there are other factors that probably factor into burnout for providers more than the press gain tension. The press gain tension is sort of in the back of our head. I think there are other things that are more broken um, and more challenging, uh -huh. like throughput the issues. The might be for institution as opposed to an individual practitioner. Exactly. Well, well press actually, I mean, people still get scored and graded maybe as a department, but I think for most of us, we, we have larger issues that contribute more to burnout. Um, you know, ED overcrowding or throughput or access to specialty care or things like that. Um, or a, a, a solid EHR, which thankfully we're going to you know, hopefully amend that soon. But I think those are, in large measure, greater contributors to burnout than Prescani scores, which are sort of in the back of our head, uh -huh. but it's not as, it, there are more sort of day-to-day -day issues. That well, are some hospitals actually, re, you know, go down to the specific score for the a particular provider, and then they may base some kind of pay or Bonus benefits or on like that. that. So that becomes very stressful. Right, Kaiser does that. Yeah. It's all it's your, that. your press gain it out by individual. You also touched upon the EHR and knowing that we're going to be going through some 
interesting times with the new EHR. Maybe we live in interesting times. Yeah, are you right? Are you beginning to plan for that, especially as it relates to physician burnout and the difficulties that physicians are going to face? Yeah, I mean, well, the interesting thing about EHRs in general is that you know, moving from you know, over the course of you know, we've all practiced for twenty years or so, each, um, you know, moving from systems that. Uh, moving into systems that require more and more electronic documentation is part of the part of the factors of burnout. When you spend most physicians spend greater than fifty percent of their time charting than actually seeing patients. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're charting on three or four different systems, that makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. So we all know that going to a unified system, if it works well and it's implemented well, will hopefully decrease that. Mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of getting it implemented in the correct fashion. And I know we have a bunch of folks. Um, we've been working on that, so uh, we're looking forward to it. We are all looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, good. The, the issue of burnout is a really big topic right now in healthcare. Physician burnout, nurses burnout, and it is you know quite a complex one. Uh, uh, but in terms of our strategic priorities that we are doing, uh, I think the Beta Heart program is is an important one electronic health records and engaging the staff in the build-up and the selection in, in what is our future state is another uh, important uh, one. Um, and uh, this, you know, integrity among the medical staff and working as team is another important one. Uh, now, of course, you know, having other programs that addresses the, the, uh, the issues related you know, to having lounge or, or the, really the workflow is, is, is extremely important. Uh, the physicians and the nurses, they want to come and feel meaning about what they are doing and, uh, and, and communicate or connect, let's say, with the patient in a meaningful way. And I think this, these, these are like, you know, I, I see them as important remedies or preventers of the, of the burnout. Thank you. Okay. Which one of you is next? Okay, Joe. Yes. Um, so uh, we had our MEC meeting on May 16, and uh, we had some uh, update on our non-clinical contract uh, to our MEC, and that was quite helpful. Uh, we did, that was our first uh, update on. Uh, non-clinical contract and we get a uh, little bit into um, the quality of care that's provided and there will be there are physicians who volunteer to be the contact person for the non-clinical uh, contract to provide better service and um, and be more uh, smooth process uh, and I think that was uh, very helpful and then we also uh, uh, went over uh, transfer guideline between Alameda Hospital and San Diego Hospital. And uh, we, uh, the purpose of that is to provide a more fluid, smooth transfer between the facility. Sometimes we do not have the specialists or we do not have the beds to take, to take care of the patient. And we, um, at times, like for GI or newer patient, we need transfer to uh, Alameda Hospital and uh, having a uh, process that we agree on really uh, expedite the, the, the patient transfer process 
instead of having patient go to ER, then get admitted, they can go directly to the floor. And we and uh, vice versa, uh, there are um, vascular patients that uh, require um, emergent vascular surgery that uh, we want to explore and have an expedited process that goes straight from the ER to the OR without bypassing anything. And, uh, and we have a quite a robust uh, vascular uh, surgery program in uh, San Andrew Hospital. And we have some uh, requests from the vascular surgeon to expedite the transferring process. And that's all in the uh, goal of uh, providing better patient care, better patient outcome. And then uh, we also uh, touch upon the, the topic of a uh, physician representative to the board of trustees. And we had discussions to see what kind of process we should uh, select the representative to the board of trustees. And it seems to be a challenging one uh, at this point. Uh, right now, we only, uh, there's only one uh, seat for uh, the physician representative. And uh, we, uh, the MEC and myself included, uh, feel that uh, it's difficult for someone who, say, uh, practice in a community hospital, just for myself alone, and uh, for me to uh, represent, uh, say, uh, AHS core. Uh, as I am a community hospital, I'm not involved in academic teaching, I'm not involved in a residency program, and this, the scope and the size of uh, AH core is uh, not well versed to me, and I think I would have a hard time representing them. Uh, and I think, vice, uh, likewise, that uh, someone who's only working the AHS core would have a hard time understanding what community practice is like. So we, um, there is some um, discussion whether or not there could be uh, more than uh, one representative. Uh, for to uh, for physician to uh, to sit in the board of trustees, so um, that's uh, the extent of uh, our discussion. Has that occurred with others as well? Um, yes, it has, but I think this is for. Um, you want to use it? You want to talk yeah. about it in the larger meeting? Yes. Is that what you want to do? Yes. Yeah, we, we were tasked to come up with a plan for the physician representative, and we could not agree um, because we have three separate in, independent medical staffs, and so it's maybe the larger session is a better forum for it. I'm not quite sure what the best session. Yeah, well, I, 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 either session, yeah. but, but probably when all the board members are here, we'll be. Yeah. We'll, we'll be the, the is there is there a, is there an opportunity in the larger session for us to um, touch base on this? Don't you all have reports so. in the open session? Have have report. Yeah, you yeah. have reports in the open session, so so we can do that. Um, I will. Uh, I can hold it till then because I do have some opinions. Sure. Obviously, I have some opinions. Um, <laughs> what a surprise! <laughs> what a surprise! What a, a big surprise! Um, uh, I, I think that. Perhaps there's not an understanding of the role of the board within the group of the doctors because the people here are not representatives of, of their community or of their 
area that they live in or and I was going to say with the exception of Tracy which is 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 in our is in our bylaws um, rather the person who sits here was to help us understand the clinical issues around hospitals and not as representatives of a given facility. So what I see Barry has done at the board level is in fact given us insight about medical practices or talk about the MAC or what are the kinds of things that are going on that lay people may not necessarily have information. If you're looking for representation, and I, I'll just repeat this in the open session if you want, this would be the best place in order to get that done. If you guys have things that you really want a board to know, there isn't any reason that all the board members can't attend this meeting. So if there's something that's critical, right now you have Quorum. almost everybody mm -hmm. at the board level in these meetings. So if there are things that you feel you want to voice from your hospital, this is the best form and why we in fact have made it that given more time for your reports and we in fact moved the doctor's reports to up to the front of the agenda in our regular board meeting so that you would have opportunities to voice those things. So I think you might want to think about it. The other issue frankly that you also need to consider is the amount of time that it takes to be a board member. I'm facing burnout and I don't even do what you do. So I can tell you that it, it takes a lot of time. So she's here and spends time, there's conference, there's agenda planning, and if you're a practicing, you're going to have to give some stuff up as she has. So you, you really need to give those things as consideration and we can talk about it in a larger meeting, so. Can, can I jump in? Yeah. I think it's great for the larger meeting. I really want to speed this up. I feel we are not going to give enough time to a very robust ambulatory report that I think is exciting. Yeah, great. And I'm really, we're, we're way behind schedule. And, and, and so please, if we could, I'm, I'm yeah. starting to get nervous I, I, about that. I was going to say, also, I think we need to move on, but entirely appropriate. This is something you've yeah. talked about in your medical staff. Yeah. Meetings, you need to, you can bring it up in your reports, and it's a big topic. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, one more. Yeah, L. Okay. Yeah, for um, Alameda, um, when we met on um, May 19. The issues that the MEC um, talked about and are still focusing on are the uh, clinical service shortages that we have for our specialists which is um, urology, psychiatry, podiatry, and GI. Um, we are a small community hospital. We share resources between San Leandro. That's why we made the, um, the transfer agreement uh, between San Leandro and Alameda to expedite things. Um, it's usually done outside of the, um, of the transfer cent service center that we have uh, because we've had several cases that we needed to specialists on both ends. Um, for cardiology, uh, our, um, Dr. Raskin, who's been our cardiologist in the community for a long time, is um, not going to be part of, of uh, serving Alameda. So we have Dr. Hill that's stepping up um, and will be assuming um, taking care of 
of general cardiology services for our community in July. Uh, we're still working on um, getting him some coverage for nights and weekends, so hopefully that will be um, uh, in place when he starts in July, because we don't want burnout. We usually have only one or two specialists in, in our hospital, which is, you know, we're, which is why we need um, you know, help with, uh, with in the system. Um, so we also did uh, a review some of the non-physician contracts that are now coming to our MEC, and um, we our MEC also reviewed the strategic priorities for the SBU dashboards that were provided, the metrics we reviewed, and we provided feedback on them. There were some. Um, Metrics that historically our MEC were interested in that were not part of that, so we wanted them to be included um, on top of what um, the um, SBU dashboards were um, so that are going to be reported moving forward. So we've asked for that from, from quality just for our own uh, hospital. Any questions? Okay. So moving on to the next item, which is a report from the Ambulatory Care Quality and Safety Metrics from Dr. Jamaldin and Dr. Babaria. Yeah. I want to introduce uh, Dr. Babaria. I, I don't think you have been here before. Yeah. 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 Not in my new capacity. Okay, yeah, in your new capacity as uh, uh, Chief Administrative Officer for Ambulatory Care. And I let you introduce your team. Uh, we are going to present uh, the latest metrics that we have over ambulatory and our strategic you know, direction to the, to the board. Okay, Alam. Thank you all for having me. Um, I brought a number of members of our team. Steve Kilgore is our Director of Nursing and is also performing in an interim VP Stand up. In ambulatory, <coughs> Holly Garcia, who is our director of operations and also our administrative lead for all of Prime, uh, Dr. Minnie Swift, whom all of you know very well, I think, and Dr. Blake Gregory, who is now the medical director of the K6 Adult Medicine Clinic. Um, and we have some great members of our quality team who have also been supporting ambulatory and Prime uh, for a while now. So Dr. Jamaladeen gave me a list of 30 topics he wanted me to include in this presentation. And for Prime, we are tracking 56 topics, and I think we have another 12 HEDIS metrics. So I shortened that list. I'm hoping you guys will have me back so I can complete that entire list over time. Um, I chose to really prioritize two major topics today, one of which is access, which I know is something that this board and um, my entire team care really deeply about and is really the foundation for us moving to become a population health-centered organization that can take care of not just the patients that we see on a day-to-day -day basis in our clinics, but all of the patients that are part of our system, whether they're coming in person or not. Um, and then the second set of metrics we'll focus on is more traditional quality metrics. Um, so I just wanted to provide a little bit of background and I apologize if some of this is redundant for those of you who've been here for a while. These slides were presented to some of the members of this board a few years ago, but I do think, you know, when we talk about access, we sometimes talk about it as one lump sum concept, and it really matters depending on what type of access you're talking about. 
Um, and especially from the ambulatory standpoint, I think access for new patients is very different than access for our established patients who've already been coming to see us. Um, for new patients, it really is, you know, how many patients can we take care of in primary care? Um, do we have enough providers to actually assume responsibility for that patient pool? Um, and in current state, our provider panels are 1,250 patients for a physician provider and 1,000 patients for an NP or physician assistant provider. And these are around benchmark for safety net organizations. So I was just at a statewide prime meeting yesterday and we did a canvas for all the ambulatory leaders and those panels range from about 900 to 1,400 for adult medicine um, across all the different safety net organizations in the state of California. So we're sort of right in the ballpark. What, what about non Net. So at the Kaisers of the world, yeah. so Kaiser it's much higher, so around 2,000 is sort of industry oh. standard. It's like 15 minutes. Left. Yeah, like yeah. I'm All a Kaiser right. member, I haven't seen my PCP in four years I think now, and so, you know, slightly tailored for the complexity or not of the patient population. Yeah. When we've done analyses of our own patient population, we just tend to have fewer of the 20 and 30 year old patients who don't have a lot of medical conditions. Um, and obviously for primary care, the panel is critical because you're not just taking care of the patient when they get sick and come to see you or when they have one specific subspecialty concern and they come to see you. You are responsible for that patient's entire lifespan for making sure they're up to date on all of their vaccinations, their colon cancer screening, their breast cancer screening. Um, and this is sort of the number where people feel like you have enough access to your provider and that person can do the necessary outreach um, and provide the services that our patients um, need and deserve. What's your average number of visits per day per provider? Um, we are scheduled currently for between 17 to 20 visits per day, depending on the site, there's a little bit of variability. The no-show rate has been at around 20 to 25% by site, and I'll pull in some no-show data a little bit later in this presentation. And of the clinic hours, how many hours are given over to um, charting? So for the UAPD uh, contracted physicians, it's four hours if they're full-time, and so it depends on the schedule, and it's prorated if someone's half-time, it'll be two hours. Um, I will say charting is never completed in that amount of time because that's four hours for all of your charting plus all of your follow-ups of patient calls, needs med refills. So that's per day? Um, total for the total. whole week. So it, it bleeds into a lot of hours outside of the workday. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> Four per week. Per week, yeah. But the average is what? The most providers are working four days a week, so it comes to about an hour. Yeah, What's the average? prorated. So if someone's a four-day-a-week provider, then it would be three hours out of oh, that four days a week. Okay. Yeah. No, five days. In FTE is five days. Yeah. In FTE is five. Okay. So if you a full-time provider, you do nine clinical sessions a week, and then you get one four-hour block for everything else. Okay. Um, so I think the biggest struggle for us as an organization is that you know, we have been assigned a lot of patients by both Alameda Alliance and Anthem Blue Cross, especially with the ACA and Medicaid expansion. We know that our county just has not had enough capacity in primary care. And you know, this is true of CHCN as well, is that we have a lot more patients assigned to us than we can actually take care of. So I updated the slide a little bit from the last time you guys saw it. So when this was presented, Three years ago, I believe our number was at around 23,000, and we're now taking care of close to 28,000 patients. So we have expanded capacity and absorbed um, thousands more patients, but then we've also been assigned a lot more patients. So about 65,000 patients are assigned to us by our payers, and only 27,000 of those are in our system, have an identifiable primary care provider. 
and the rest are floating around, either waiting to get into us, which I'll show you the data in a second, or they may not even know that they're assigned to us. And we, in current state, don't have a great mechanism for doing outreach to these patients and engaging them into care, nor do we actually have capacity from the primary care side to absorb those patients. Almost all of our primary care panels are full or close to full. Are, are they reassigned every year? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are they reassigned every year? I mean, the, the, the 65? The thousand. So Medi-Cal enrollment refreshes on the first of every month. Okay. So you know, most patients stay with us for the whole year or unless they call to switch and stuff, but the numbers could change on a monthly basis. Do you have a breakdown of where those patients live? We have done some geomapping in the past when we've gotten the data from the Alliance, but I think we haven't done that in about 18 months. <coughs> the data's a little bit outdated and we do have demand data that shows that most of it is North County. Okay, because I, I would like uh, I would like our, um, Anthony to see this, the one trustee is not here. Um, and I'd love to see the data for the city of Alameda because I mean, it's gonna stay at, we know that if we can expand our primary care access for our patients, we're more likely to capture and hold on to those lives. And, and the, uh, it, it, the sustainability of the system really is right here, right? Uh, and so when he says that uh, primary care clinic at Alameda might cost a lot. I think we can't afford not to. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I just wanted to say And when that. we looked at this a few years ago, there are pockets such as Alameda, but the, the biggest chunk is up in Oakland. It's Oakland. So and our Eastmont and Highland sites are the most saturated, and those are the two that have the longest waiting list. So we're able to do the geo mapping by zip code and be mm -hmm. able to pull up the heat yeah. maps on those and yep. easily refresh them. Yeah, we have to get that data from the Alliance every time we ask for it, and then we can do it. Great. Um, relatively easily. And I know that Tangerine, who's our new CEO of Population Health, will be here in a few weeks, and I yeah. can't wait. Um, this is completely on her radar, and both mine and her number one priority to figure out what is our strategy going to be to address this delta. Before you move on, so this is um, the blue box here is all patients, all of the patients in the ACA, uh, the exchange and Medicaid, Medi-Cal? This is just managed Medi-Cal assigned to us. Okay. 65,000 um, are assigned to us, and then the red box is those who have actually either access, who have accessed the system mm -hmm. at one time or another. Okay. Are, are actively currently engaged they're, in our system. They're the active patients. Exactly. So, but the other 65,000 may be like you, and they just don't necessarily need to see to the other, the remainder, the other 40,000. They haven't entered our system at all. Okay, so they've never accessed anything not for primary care right. they came to the emergency room right right how about health pack patients are they in there anywhere um they're in our twenty-seven thousand. the sixty-five thousand doesn't right mm -hmm. so there could be a offset yeah. or maybe another ten thousand yeah. yeah yeah and, and would you say that is there a similar um discrepancy between ACA assignees who have accessed versus who've been assigned through the, through the exchange? I don't think we've actually had a lot of patients assigned to the exchange as far okay. as I'm aware. Um, so this is just representing sort of the phenomenon I just described. So 
we started keeping track in April of 2015. We actually had no data before then of how many patients are actually trying to get into primary care. And we kept this wait list. So every time a patient would call us saying, I need primary care, and we didn't have an appointment, we would put them on that wait list, we'd capture it. So we started out at 1,500. It peaked at about 2,000. And then the major success story is we had incredibly successful primary care recruitment across all of our sites over year 2016. So after we last came to the board, presented this plan, um, our Hayward site hired new primary care providers as at our Eastmont site, as at the Highland site. And that is what led to that dramatic decline. So in October of 2016, the wait list pretty much got eliminated. People were calling us, and they got new primary care appointments within a week, which had never happened in the history of our system before, which is great news. And it's really a testament. If you build it, they will come. If you find primary care providers and hire them, the demand is out there people are hungry for primary care. What's, um, the, what's the percentage of open practices in the primary care? Within our system? So all of them are open. So all four of our FQHC sites are taking new patients. Okay. We're just not keeping up with the pace at which people are asking for appointments. For the community, I'm not entirely sure. You know, private practices in the area and see. Yeah, no, no, I just meant within yeah, our so system. All of our sites are actively open. Every site is accepted. But every physician is open, or is it just there's some... Some, some that are practice. closed, some that are, some that are open. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. How many of the positions, if you took them individually, not by site? Um, I have that data, percentage? but I just didn't bring it, so I can, okay. bring, I can get that back to you as opposed to guessing off the top of my head. Um, and it really depends on when the new ones were hired. So most of our new hires, all of their panels are open because they're still yeah. building the panels. The providers have been here for a while and to be much more saturated. Um, and then what you'll see is, you know, slowly our list is rising again. So on the most recent dashboard, we have a waiting list of 517 patients again, and that number has been rising since um, this past winter. And do the primary cares have any incentives, productive, productivity incentives? They were, there were quality incentives and some productivity incentives built into the last UAPD contract. We're up for renegotiation this in June, so that's definitely something I'll be looking at. We have been hampered just by data that we don't have great productivity data accessible out of current Sorian financials. The quality data, which I'll show you, has gotten much better, but the productivity one, just especially when you add in the NPs and PAs and the residents and how we build for them, it's really hard to get accurate provider-level data. Which is a challenge. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is, at this point, almost all of our sites, Hayward has one primary, 1.6 primary care positions open. Eastmont has one position open, um, and Highland has recently hired two replacement positions. But other than that, the rooms are full. So we are now, you know, facing definitely geographic constraints to expanding primary care. Mm -hmm. And all of the sites are actively expanding to evening and weekend hours as well as another way to improve access. Does it make sense to be expanding primary care at Highland versus at out in the community? Like I don't know. I think a lot of people think of going to the primary care physician is going to somewhere like Eastmont, I and mean, you, you go to the hospital when you need something more specialty or elaborate, unless you're Kaiser, of course. But does it make more sense to be expanding? Like in, in Oakland, it sounds like you could add five more primary care positions in the city of Oakland. And we we fill those. Their, their days would be full quickly, right? Yes, absolutely. Does it? I mean, have you looked at where it makes sense to add those? Yeah, I think the two rate limiting steps are that one. Um, you know, if I was a patient, I would never want to deal with parking on this campus ever. Right. Um, but we can miss our patients. We actually there are many patients who are trying to actively get into Highland, and huh. I think it's this 
proximity to the specialists or sense that you know Highland is a place that provides great care. And so we actively have patients trying to transfer from some of the other sites and, and come to this campus because there's a sense, I think, in the community that it is special. So from a patient preference standpoint, there is still a ton of demand on this campus. And then certainly for patients with very complicated medical disease who may also have a cardiologist and a pulmonologist and a GI doc here, I think there is that patient population just based off of acuity um, that benefits from having all of their care integrated here. Um, that being said, clearly we need more space in North Oakland. The FQHC piece is another big one that if we do get a totally different site, we, it may not be FQHC certifiable. Um, so from a financial standpoint, expanding one of our existing sites may make more sense. Yeah, North Oakland, where all those 20, 30-year-old, hip, young, healthy, <laughs> you know, trendy patients live, maybe we could capture some of those lives. Just, just saying. Like you? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's what's um, internal medicine versus family practice? Do you tend to find more internal medicine here at the site at the hospital and more family practice out of the clinic? Yeah, so at our clinic here, it is all internal medicine, and I think that is driven in large part by our residency program. For ACGME requirements, they have to be precepted by internal medicine boarded physicians. So it just makes more sense. And the clinics, what's the ratio out there? Do you, I know you probably don't have um, exact So number. in Eastmont, they are mostly internal medicine. I think they have only one or two family practice. They have mostly internal medicine, pediatrics, and OB-GYN. Um, same with Newark is mostly internal medicine and pediatrics with one OB-GYN. The Hayward site is almost entirely a family practice model. Yeah. Why isn't Newark on the Oh, so Newark is not. Uh, Patient waitlist. Newark actually has great access, and so they're not, they don't have a waiting list. Patients can call and get a same week appointment at Newark, and it's been that way for about two years. You could send them from right. We right. do offer all of the patients to call. We say if you don't want to be on the waiting list, you can go to Newark, and there aren't as many takers. How about a shuttle? So hope, hope it is really like different. I love it. Um, so hopefully that gives you a sense of just new patients and sort of where we are. Obviously, a ton of work needs to be done to address that 40,000 delta gap that we have. And then I think, you know, the waiting times and access, as we think about it, for established patients is a completely different piece. So hopefully all of you guys are familiar with the third next available appointment, the TNA. I don't need to belabor that. Um, so the DHCS standards are that if a patient who is an established patient calls and they need a routine appointment, we are supposed to be offering it within 10 business days. Um, I don't think any public system in the county has, in any county in the state, has consistently hit that goal ever, but that is the standard nonetheless. Um, and you'll see for our four sites sort of where the averages lie and um, the blue line is Highland, the red one is Eastmont, the gray one is Newark, and then Hayward is all the way at the top. Um, and you'll see that you know, even though there have been some improvements, the trends are relatively stagnant. I think this is where we actually have the opportunity to make the most improvement. And access for established patients is really multifactorial. It is driven by... And is that generally, uh, is that for primary care physicians mostly? Yes. It's just shocking that at Newark, you can get a new, you can get a Chiffy Lube appointment in a week, but you can't come back for 54 days. Yep. They, they, they don't reject any walk. Any walk in, they just they tell them, don't take an appointment, just come. This is this is uh, like the way, uh, like they don't go through the call center and. But don't come back. 
Yeah, but they will come back. And, For two and months. They, uh, uh, it's very interesting. They, they know each other. It's like uh, they know the patients, they know the community, uh, and they, they, they just come. This is how I saw Yeah, it. but why, why do they have that availability? For, to walk in the door, but not when you call actually needing a yeah, follow-up. So that's know, maybe what, like, I have a disconnect there. I mean, I, I, so part I, of it is new patient slots, that they have new patient slots as they're building panels, but then all of the follow-up slots get really saturated. And so this is where the reasons for why the wait times for return access is really long are really multifactorial. One is the no-show rate, which I'm going to show you data on right. in a second. Yeah. One is also just provider education. You know, oftentimes patients get put on autopilot where it's like, oh, you have diabetes, I need to see you every two months or every three months, even if you're well controlled, as opposed to spreading it out. Um, Team-based care is a huge part of this, that if, you know, the physician is doing every single element of the patient's care and doing all of the medication refills, all of the foot exams, all of the cancer screening, then, you know, you have to see patients back more frequently to get all of that done, as opposed to... We had a true team-based model of care where a nurse can do outreach and call. So I don't need to schedule you to come back in a year for your mammo because I know that someone's going to be keeping track of you and calling you in a year to get that mammogram. Sort of the Kaiser model. The um, Kaiser, 52% of their encounters in ambulatory care is electronic, is telehealth, 52%. Um, and then I think a lot of this is operations. So currently, if you order a CT scan or an MRI, there's no guarantee that that test is going to reliably get done, and that breaks down at a lot of different steps in the chain. Same with specialty referrals. So in my own clinical practice, if I'm really worried about a patient, I will schedule a follow-up in two weeks just to make sure that test got scheduled, which is obviously not a great use of an appointment, but for patients I'm really worried about, that's sort of the safest way of doing it. And so, But there might be other operational ways of handling that, too, and make your practice much more efficient. Absolutely. Yeah. And so those are all of the things that we are going to be tackling. And do you hold certain, uh, d during your uh, scheduling, do you hold a couple of appointments for emergent or urgent? Some of our clinics do that, not all of them. And then I think the other huge driver of this is we have different templates for every single clinic across the system, including specialty and primary care. Um, and that variation definitely affects our access in a lot of ways. The more sort of special templates and special slots you have, the harder access is. And so we're actually, one of our big initiatives over the next few months is to standardize templates across all of primary and specialty care. And Dr. Kamaladeen is being very supportive with that. So <laughs> when everyone gets upset, I'm going to refer them to Dr. Kamaladeen. Um, and then this is the other big driver. So we say we have no access. You call up, you have an urgent need, and we say wait two months. But then on any given day, you know, 20 to 25% of our patients are just no-showing. Um, we've done a lot of exhaustive audits on this before, and a lot of it is our safety net population. People, you know, your car breaks down. You can't get to your clinic appointment. You lose childcare that day. You have no one um, to take care of your elderly relative that you've been watching. Um, you know, and a lot of our patients, it's also the culture that we make people wait. We cancel appointments on them, and there isn't the sense that I should call and cancel my appointment so that someone else gets this lot. But no, you... Sorry, do we have, what's the industry standard for no-shows? Um, so in the safety net, the, the goal we say is we want it to be less than 20%. Really high-performing safety net systems have been able to drive this number down to less than 15%. And what about non-safety net? Um, it's much lower because there's usually a penalty. So you get charged $50 to $100 if you don't. And I was going to ask about that because I've paid probably a car payment's worth of penalties for my yep. son missing his dental cleaning. And that's like 50 illegal in medical standards. So we can't do that at this organization. Yeah, yeah. Understandable. But I wonder if there is some way to incentivize showing up. 
What about a different scheduling methodology, knowing that your no-show rate is this high? There are some groups that have looked at yes. different ways of scheduling. You totally it's read my mind. So we, yeah. my goal is within one year, I want us to move us to an open access model of scheduling, which is how the high-performing safety net mm -hmm. systems, Contra Costa does this, San Mateo does this. Yeah. Um, they've been able to consistently lower their no-show rate to less than 15%, on some days less yeah. than 10% with open access scheduling. What does so, that mean? Okay. The way that works is basically you don't make appointments. You know, Right now we'll say, oh, we can't see you today, but we're going to see you four months from now, and you make the appointment. And then the patient forgets to write it down. They lose that paper that you gave them with their appointment, and they no-show. And we. Many of our clinics do do reminder calls. Sometimes we can't reach the patients. The phone number was disconnected. Mm -hmm. um, so open access scheduling basically means that you don't schedule six months out. You just tell the patient, hey, we want to see you in three months. Call us. Mm -hmm. Or we'll send you a postcard reminder to call us, mm -hmm. the same way your dentist sends you a postcard reminder. And then you only book that appointment seven or ten days in advance. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, with understanding that if I book this and it's a week from now, you should be able to remember it. You'll be able to figure out the logistics, child care, transport, whatever it is. And we've made it an appointment at your convenience. And the, um, other, the other thing you might consider is uh, there's a way to schedule for no-shows as well. In other words, instead of just scheduling your four on the hour, you could schedule five knowing the 25% is going to be on yeah. your no-show. Yeah. yeah, and then you do. they all show. Yeah, and, yeah you will have, you will have the day where they all show up, the bad day. Absolutely. I will, I will say that other systems tried that. So Contra Costa and La Clinica did that for a while before they went to open access, and it was one of the number one drivers of provider burnout um, yeah. and dissatisfaction. So they quickly backed off of that, because on those days where everyone showed, it really, really it was, was a nightmare. So I'm yeah. hoping we can get there. Do, do we have a policy or a way in the system to know when, I mean, it seems if people would cancel a 24 hours in advance, then you could put another patient in that slot. Do we have that built into the system? Not in a consistent manner, but that's what we need to move towards. And I think, you know, patient education is a big piece of this, that if we can consistently educate our patients and also provide them the service that they expect, they would be more willing to sort of call us. Yeah, and if we could send them a text reminder 24 hours in advance and they could text back, oh, I'm not going to make it, then we would automatically know, because that's... But we are so doing that in yeah. our... In, our clinic, if there is a known no-show or a or a, a cancellation, another patient is put into that. We yeah. try to do this, but in the new electronic health records, uh, so the patient has an app, mm -hmm. and uh, they can even check in, right. uh, start their, their history. So, uh, and then and then if they cancel or if there is delay from the clinic, then there is some kind of communication. So if they cancel, there is an automatic booking yeah. for another patient. So that's the future state, you know. Great. You know, okay. Yeah, and, and I know that Epic does have this uh, yeah. part of their my chart where they remind you of your upcoming appointments. Yeah. yeah. And the Sorry, fears. Sorry, interrupting. Yeah. No questions are great. It's more robust discussion. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. I look at pediatrics and I'm like, wow. And although cases, it's you know. not your fault, we only have about 10 minutes to go. Yeah. So I will speed through um, the rest. And then suffice it to say, for specialty, I think there are similar challenges, much more variability around you know, which specialties we just need to expand providers. Um, and other ones where we don't. So this just shows the TNAA by specialty. Mm -hmm. And then is it really? Yeah, I'm sorry. Is yes. that top one real? Two like years. a two-year wait if you've got a pulmonary problem. I mean, do people survive that long? Um, so similar to 
everything at our organization. People have figured out backdoor channels. If you're really worried about a patient, you call up a pulmonologist and they will squeeze them into clinic. Do that is not a sustainable way of operating. So yes, we're actively trying to restructure um, that service to improve access. Um, but none of these numbers you know, are, are great. And then the no-show rates, I think, are also telling and tend to be much higher in specialty than in primary care um, for many of the same reasons. Mm -hmm. Can I just go back to pulmonary? Is that because of recruitment issues and trying to find pulmonologists? Or it's, it's, it's multifactorial. I think uh, the pulmonary service has focused uh, on uh, like subspecialty in pulmonary, like pulmonary hypertension and TB, and uh, they didn't focus on general pulmonary. So we have uh, you know, a great deal of uh, need. So we are restructuring this. Uh, the pulmonary specialty is currently under the OCAP contract, and we are in discussion with the chair and the division to, to restructure that service totally. We don't have pulmonologists outside of uh, Highland. Danny, you mean in In our FQSC, other, other than FQSC, oh, it's only here in KCS. And Dr. Jamaluddin started a Friday afternoon pulmonary clinic, which has been very helpful. Great. I want can, to make it more efficient. Can I make a recommendation to, to this committee that, in the interest of time, that we really focus the next 10 minutes on access and patient satisfaction and ask you to come back to talk about quality at our next, because there's a whole lot of quality. And I'd rather not have you race through it all. Mm -hmm. I think this is so important that, I mean, our ambulatory system is where, again, our system is going to sustain itself with population mm -hmm. health and making sure people don't end up mm -hmm. in the hospital. I just want to, can, can we do that? Sure. It's, it's so, fine with me. Let me let uh, Dr. Jamaluddin. So, uh, Joe, the next month we were planning to do behavioral health and post-acute, oh. but we can, we can postpone this. We can bring ambulatory again next month and then do the month after. Uh, we're doing quarterly with the, with these three rotations, so we can we can certainly bring back ambulatory next month, and then the month after we will do. Well, you, you, we also have the that first board meeting of the month, so it doesn't necessarily have to be in QPSC. So if you were going to do the behavioral in QPSC, you, sure. you could do it on, on that, what is it, the fourth? Gen, um, Y yes. Meeting of the fourth. Right. It's uh, yeah. oh, the board meeting. Yeah. yeah. The first board right. meeting in okay. June. Is right. The so. first board meeting in June. So if we don't already have a full agenda for that, that might be a good idea. No, no, it's okay. fine. It's okay. We can bring it up. Okay. okay. We'll work it out. Okay. Great. And we'll admonish ourselves uh, during the credentialing part of our meeting to not talk too much. Um, okay. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I mean, what, what I'd like before the full, what I would like out of this is some recommendations from you about what we need to do, for example, in our budget process, what our priority should be to make sure that we are expanding access uh, and, and strengthening ambulatory. So that, like, I want to be able to, I want to be informed. Yeah. Maybe we can start there and then we'll dive into specialty. Okay, all right. Um, so I think as I've been rounding through all of our clinic sites, and this applies to primary care FQHC as well as the specialty clinics, it is clear that I think everything is held together, you know, with string, and people are trying to do the best they can, but I think we haven't, as an organization and as ambulatory, ever really figured out what our staffing model is for a clinic, and so what I'm finding is there are clinics where you have the provider, 
and you literally don't have the registration clerks to register the patients or the MAs to do intake or discharge. So mm. riders are waiting an hour to get a patient into a room. They are doing their own intake, their own discharge, faxing paperwork. You know, no one is working to the top of their license because we're missing sort of key personnel to support the clinics. And I think a lot of the access issues when we think about throughput, you know, we're scheduling 17 to 20 a day. Could we schedule more? Absolutely, if things were moving in an efficient manner where you could actually get a patient in and out the door within 30 minutes, which should be, you know, our gold standard um, for a 15 to 20 minute appointment. And so within the ambulatory budget, I think we clearly need certain types of frontline staff to make our licensed staff, including the nurses and the physicians and MPs and PAs, much more productive in actually providing clinical care. So in as much as this board can support some of those ambulatory asks in this next budget cycle, I think that would be a huge help. Um, the other piece of it is that some of our licensed staff, especially nurses, we haven't been using to the top of their license. And I think over the next year or so, we really need to look at their roles and responsibilities and say, how can we make you an integral part of the team where you're doing a lot of this outreach and healthcare maintenance and titrating diabetes medications and hypertension medications? Because if a patient can come and see a nurse and have their diabetes treated, you just opened up a slot in that primary care provider schedule to see something more complicated and more urgent. You know, and at the Kaiser model, the PCPs, they don't do diabetes and hypertension management because other members of the care team work off really great protocols and do it. And a lot of that work now with national guidelines is so standardized that you don't actually need um, a licensed provider to do it. And I think with population health, it's just going to have to drive care that way yep. because it's the only efficient way and the only way to actually deliver that care. But I agree. I think looking and focusing on our primary care network is going to be critical going forward. And is there, so are those staff vacancies or are those staff positions that don't exist? They don't exist. And is that at all of the clinics or some of the clinics? Um, the ratios vary a little bit and so we're just in the process of finalizing based off of looking at national benchmarks and other like institutions. LA County actually just went through this process where they finalized their staffing ratios across the county level um, to say for each provider who's a primary care provider, how many clerks do you need, how many nurses do you need, how many medical assistants do you need. The total number is down at almost all the clinics. Some are, have many more deficiencies than others. Mm -hmm. But how are you going to adjust for variability for more productive physicians or more productive nurse practitioners who tend to be, um, I don't know how to even put this, right, quicker or more, more, I'm sorry, more efficient. I was searching for the more efficient word. Who tend to be a little bit more efficient during their day and maybe they're seeing 26 to 28 patients per day. So I think for the most part right now, everyone has roughly the same schedules within a clinic. So I think the efficient people are just, you know, being, finishing early, finishing their charting, you know, just not spending four hours when they go home to finish that stuff. Um, but we haven't figured out, we need to also figure out more flexibility in the schedule to accommodate that. If you are more efficient, you can squeeze in more patients. Especially if you have productivity as part of your contract, too, and you're, you've got productivity standards, productivity Absolutely. awards, and there may be some physicians who, you know, can achieve that 28 patients per day. Ellen, did you want to ask? Uh, yeah, just a general question. So uh, for Alameda, we have um, a primary care practice that was supported by the hospital. There were two uh, providers that were there. One um, was not until uh, to end last year that we didn't have any more primary care clinics, so we have problems with access. So is this going to be part of what um, your task is going to be 
for Alameda to for our primary care clinic uh, as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you know there definitely was a proposal as far as I'm aware that was made to the board to support opening, reopening that primary care practice at Alameda, and I would just have to defer to Gasan in terms of timing. So. Well, uh, you know, in our prioritization process, uh, though it is important, we didn't feel it is as much mission critical compared to the other priorities that we put on, uh, especially that we need more than just hiring providers. We need to establish an infrastructure for this in order for it to be successful. So that was a uh, discussion. I mean, we certainly think that it is, uh, you know, an important priority for Almeida Island. And again, you know, it's going to be sort of uh, different than our FQHC infrastructure. So we want to see how we can uh, make it effective and, and, and and uh, like viable, so that was that was the thinking. It's not that it's not important, but we really uh, wanted to focus on uh, the next fiscal year uh, on on uh, you know whatever is as much as possible mission critical in building like a strong infrastructure. And I think a big part of that for the FQHCs at least that are in the core is that 80% of our prime metrics reside in these four clinics, and if we can't fix the access and provide the high quality of care that we need to, we will lose millions of dollars. That's right. We're not so I think with that, we're going to have to call this meeting to a close. Can I ask one more question? Yes. Is there, uh, maybe this is for Luis, is there identified in the budget that we're going to get an increase in the uh, staffing positions needed to meet the needs that she just articulated? Are we going to be able to see that in the budget? Uh, yes. So, so when we start going and reviewing the budget uh, over the next several weeks, we're gonna we're gonna break it down and we're gonna share as far as what our plans are and how we're looking at 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 those resources that are gonna be necessary to support the critical initiatives and some of the other ongoing efforts that we've got as a system. So, we're gonna break some of that down. Uh, I'm not sure to what level of detail you, you may be expecting, but we're gonna certainly share and, and look at that. As, as for primary care or ambulatory as a whole, there is some adjustments that are being made. Uh, again, you know, you can only support what you can afford. So, so again, uh, you know, it's it's we're, we're going to be working well, through that. So that's that's part of the heavy lifting and part of the work that needs to be done. Right. It's a matter of priorities. I understand that, but we spend a lot of time at this board talking about our hospitals because they're big and they're they got a lot to talk about. And yet, I think there's such important work being done out at the clinics that I, I mean, I want to I want to make a policy statement that we should in in fact support the increased staffing at those clinics to keep us going. Um, so just Louise whispered in my ear that the Alameda uh, Island uh, primary care is still in the review. You know, it's not like to out. All right. So and to be continued. One second. Yes. Yeah, so just to wrap up specialty care, because I know we don't spend tons of time on it. Uh, both Ishwari, who's our VP of Strategic Planning, and I are um, in a fellowship program through the America's Essential Hospital Fellowship Leaders Program, and our project actually for this next year is specialty strategic planning to really match up not just, oh, we have space, let's plop in this clinic, but what is the true need of our community in terms mm -hmm. of specialty access so that we can line up the providers with the need and restructure all of our specialty service lines. Great. So more to more come. To and I think if anybody so, can do it, you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, Mike, do we have a Thank report you. from council? Yes, in the uh, closed session, the credentialing reports from each of the uh, facilities uh, was approved. No other action was taken. Okay. Any requests for public comment? No. All righty. We are adjourned. Thank you very much. Thanks.